So anyway, I think you guys have noticed Ronnie's not up here. Um, that's fairly obvious, I suppose. Uh, he talked me into doing this, um, and we'll get to that in a minute. But before that, um, I would like to pray with you. Um, it's been a bit of a week, and so I know I need it, and I'm sure there's some of you right there with me. So would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, uh, I'm thankful uh, for this group of people. Um, I'm thankful for this opportunity, even though it's not something I run to to share from your word. I'm thankful for that you are sufficient because I know that I am not in this circumstance at the moment especially. Lord, I just pray as we dive into your word uh, that we would be accurate, that we would handle it well, and uh, that we would be inspired to be better followers of your son as we do so. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I realized this week as I was thinking about how I was going to start the sermon that I often make the assumption that because I'm up here all the time and you guys see me, that you guys all know who I am. And I realize that's not necessarily the case. So I know there's many of you that I've not met yet because I'm up here and when you guys come into the building and that I'm not down from here by the time you guys leave the building. So I wanted to introduce myself a little bit. Um, my name is Eric Von Spreckelson. Um, I am the worship minister and as other duties as assigned here at First Christian Church. I'm full-time on staff. Um, I grew up uh, on a farm in a small town in, in uh, south-central Nebraska um, and spent the first, let's see here, 28 years of my life in Nebraska, so I am a disappointed Husker fan in the middle of wildcat country. Um, so you guys can revel in that if you like. Um, my wife, Bridget, and I moved here in the summer of 2008 to take the position of worship minister here at First Christian Church. At the time, we had one daughter, Anya, who's now a junior in high school, and I'm feeling older every day. And I have, since then, we've added two more girls. Uh, Micah is a seventh grader, and Emma is a fifth grader. And I'm sure you've seen them around, even if you don't know who they are. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of give that background. Of course, there's probably a little more to tell than that. But if I have not met you face-to-face, -face, grab me, make sure I get a chance to. I know that sometimes I miss a lot of people. Um, if I'm up here chatting with somebody on stage, feel free to interrupt just so that I can shake your hand. Um, so I apologize for those of you that I have not met personally yet, but I wanted to do that. Uh, the sermon series this Christmas, Lyrics of Christmas, I was really excited about when we were planning and stumbled across this idea of, of preaching sermons inspired by uh, classic Christmas carols, and I was excited about that for a few reasons, one of which, and I think there's a few of here here that would be with me, is there is a sense of nostalgia that comes to me around Christmas carols, that um, there are things that get me excited about the Christmas season when it comes to some of these songs. Um, and there's a few sources of that for me. Um, being a child of the 80s, uh, Amy Grant is a big part of that. And I'm sure there's some of you that are older than me that probably agree with that. But I have very vivid, probably completely inaccurate memories uh, growing up of my mother putting the Amy Grant record on the turntable as we decorated the Christmas tree. Uh, the other one was Evie. I don't know, some of you might be familiar with who Evie was. Uh, she was a lesser known um, singer that was in the similar vein to Amy Grant, but she also had a Christmas album. And those two um, are actually on my bookshelf at home now because I stole them from my mother. Um, anyway, um, so that's part of it. I also have memories of singing as a kid, as a part of the kids' choir, 
on Sunday morning in front of the congregation having to wear a nice sweater, which I hated, and being told I needed to smile and all of that. And you guys are going to get a little bit of an experience that next week as I invite some of the elementary kids to sing with me. Um, but another thing that I have nostalgia about with it comes to Christmas carols specifically uh, is Christmas Eve. And Christmas Eve growing up often went this way. We would typically celebrate Christmas with my dad's side of the family on Christmas Eve because Christmas Day was off other places and it worked for everyone. And uh, my grandparents lived just a couple miles down the road on another farm. And so we would head over to my grandma's house um, sometime after lunch and we would hang out. Um, my uncle always had video games, which we didn't have at the house. So we would play my uncle's video games. Um, we would play card games, board games. Uh, there was often, you know, a Christmas special on the TV. Um, so we would hang out all this time with the, with the gifts sitting around the tree. And us as kids saying, is it time? Is it time? But we all knew it wasn't. And then we would have a meal together. And then we would all go into town together to the Christmas Eve service at church where we would sing these Christmas carols that I remember. And it was candlelight. Um, and there's that feeling of nostalgia about that. But once that was over... If we were lucky, we might get to open a gift before then. But after that was over, then we would go back to my grandmother's house. And then, of course, it was time to open gifts, but not quite yet. Because grandma would sit at the organ, and she would play, and we would sing Christmas carols again with her. And then she would have a book that would be the Christmas story, and we would all take turns reading, and uh, we would do that. So I, I have a lot of nostalgia that comes and a lot of fond memories that are around many of these Christmas carols. But... The real reason that I got really excited about this was that these Christmas carols are mainstays because they hold elements of truth about the nature of Jesus. And I love the idea of identifying some of these carols and what it is specifically that they represent about Jesus. Because I think often we'll sing these songs and we'll say these words because some of them are so dated that maybe we don't totally understand the, the language. Um, and just pointing out why it is these carols have stood the test of time. Uh, these songs often echo timeless truths that we find in Scripture. And so week one, uh, Ronnie preached a sermon inspired by O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which embodies this idea of anticipation. And we talked about how that hap plays out in two ways. Uh, we remember the anticipation that the Jewish people had as they sought a Messiah and how Jesus came and fulfilled that. But we also talked about how as believers, we can share in that anticipation as we seek the return of Jesus when he comes on final judgment. Uh, last week, Ronnie preached a sermon that was inspired by the carol, What Child Is This?, um, which asks a quintessential question. Who is Jesus? And Ronnie pointed out last week that Jesus is the Word made flesh, come to earth to redeem all mankind. He talked about the divinity of Jesus. He talked about the idea that this being that has been here since the beginning of time entered into, the, into physical form and lived among us. And this week, uh, we've chosen to, to identify uh, some truths that are echoed by the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We sang that to start. Um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing also holds a place in my heart because of its connection to the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Um, and I won't dive too deep into that, but you'll, you'll, most of you will remember that there comes a point where uh, Charlie Brown has screwed everything up. He got the wrong Christmas tree, and then he thought he killed it. And everybody shows up and kind of saves it. And they sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing together around the Christmas tree. So there's that too. But Hark the Herald Angels Sing was actually written by Charles Wesley. It was first published in 1739. 
So I did the math. This Christmas carol has been a part of believers' celebrations for 283 years. I wonder if Mr. Wesley had any idea how God would use his music. He's written so many hymns that have been timeless. And, and this one is, is timeless in no other way than many of his others because of the scriptural truths that it echoes about Jesus' divine nature. And there are many lines that are good, but one that grabbed me was the phrase, mild he lay his glory by. Last week, as I said, Ronnie talked about the divinity of Jesus and how he is one with God. And this phrase reflects an idea that Paul preaches about, and we'll get into the text in a minute, that Jesus took that position of equality with God and set it aside so that he could enter into the world. Jesus willingly left his lofty position with God the Father in order to live and ultimately die as a man. Paul wrote about this to the Philippians in this letter, and I want to give a little disclaimer here. Um, the passage that we're going to look at and the surrounding verses are rich with truths not only about Christ's nature, but also about how that ought to affect the life of the believer. Um, Paul addresses or implies a few things in this passage that I don't intend to discuss directly this morning. I'll even admit that I may be taking this passage a little bit out of context. So don't label me a heretic just yet. Um, let me explain. Uh, I want to focus on the truths that Paul lays out about the nature of Christ and about the nature in which he entered the world. But Paul's purpose was not just to state those truths. He had another purpose in that, in that he was giving direct instruction to the Philippians on how that ought to inform their lives as followers of Jesus. And so, because I'm looking directly at the truths echoed by the carol, Hark the Herald Angel Sings, sorry, this mic is driving me crazy. Um, I'm not going to speak as much about Paul's instructions to the Philippians as I will be about the truths that he revealed about Christ here. So now that we have that disclaimer out of the way, uh, we'll move on. But um, the main thing that I think that the phrase mild he lay his glory by and what Philippians 2 reveals about Jesus is that Jesus' entry into the world reveals his humility. And that's going to be the theme that we follow this week. But the, we're going to dive into the text here. And I'm going to start actually with the last two words of verse 5, even though they won't be on the screen, and I'm going to read verses 6 um, through 11. And so the last two verses of, of verse 5 are, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. During the Christmas season, it's common for us to talk about Christ's humble beginnings. Ronnie kind of laid out the nativity scene last year with some kids, or last week, sorry, I'm sure he did last year too, but, um, and we, we kept the manger out. And so we often remember that, that Christ was born to a virgin married to a carpenter. Um, we don't know the specifics of, of Joseph's economic and social standing, but I, I think it's probably fair to assume that he wasn't part of the elite. Um, I don't know if Jesus lived in poverty. It's unlikely, but 
he probably didn't have a lot of advantages that came along with who his parents were. Um, he was also born in a manger. We talk about the fact that there was no room and uh, that he was born amongst stable animals and in, in laid in a feeding trough. Um, so there's a lot to be humble about the circumstances in which Christ entered uh, the world. But the line, mild he lays his glory by, and verses 6 and 7 of Philippians 2 um, speak to more than this. Not only was Jesus born into meager circumstances, he gave up a position of great significance in order for this to happen. The truth of Christ's humility that's revealed by his entry into this world is not just the circumstances in which he entered and lived, but also the what he gave up in order to do so. And so the first truth that Paul reveals about Christ's nature and the nature of his coming to earth is that Jesus did not seek advantage from his position. Paul writes that although Jesus was God in nature, he did not consider equality with the Father as something to take advantage of. Another translation of that phrase uh, says that uh, he did not see equality with God, something to be exploited. And it's important that, because there is some confusion depending on which which, uh, translation you read. Um, Some say that he did not regard equality as something to be grasped. And the implication there is that maybe Christ wasn't equal with God. That is not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that because Christ was equal with God, he had these advantages that were there and he chose not to pursue them. Um, it's been debated here that whether, whether Paul is contrasting Christ's reaction to equality with God to Adam and Eve's um, sin of seeking to be like God. Um, I don't know if that was intended or not, but I think you can certainly draw a par- parallel there. If you remember, um, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, the temptation that they were given was, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You will have knowledge, you will have an understanding that will put you there, maybe not in equal standing with God, but you will be like God. Now the contrast is that Christ was already equal with God. And I was reminded, as I thought about this, of the way in which Satan tempted Jesus. The account is in Luke 4. Um, It goes like this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to you, or I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. In each of the three temptations, you can make the case that Satan is asking Jesus to take advantage of his status. And in another context, I don't think any of us would have thought twice about it. I can imagine this. Another situation, it doesn't say that he's being tempted, but Jesus is wandering around in the desert and it says he was hungry. So he took a piece of a rock and turned it into a piece of bread and ate it. Most of you are like, yeah, Jesus could do that. We saw what he did with the fish and the loaves and how he multiplied that. 
But because of his humble nature, he didn't seek those advantages that he was afforded because of his position. We know that later, and we'll take more about this later, but that, that ultimately he gets authority over creation. So what Satan was offering him was something that he knew would already be his, but he didn't seek to grasp that. We also know that God had a purpose for Jesus, and if he died jumping off a cliff, that purpose wouldn't be met. So it's reasonable to assume that, that Jesus' position afforded him that advantage of security, but he didn't seek that out. It's interesting for me to contrast that with myself. I think all of us have used the positions that we hold for our own advantage at some point. And I don't think all of these are bad in and of themselves. Um, I use my position as a, vote, as a paid minister in this church to my advantage all the time. Um, my schedule affords me a certain amount of flexibility. Because of the nature of my tasks, I can do them at different times and whatever. So, I mean, I will leave early on an afternoon and go fishing. I will go into my kids' activities. Um, I have a flexibility that many of you don't have in my schedule, and I take advantage of that. I don't think that's necessarily sinful. I think it can be, though. Um, we know all kinds of circumstances. We hear about them all the time where people use the position that they have in ways that are certainly unethical, whether that is financial um, in, uh, irresponsibility or if it's seeking to gain financial advantage from their position, whether that's stealing or using company funds in an inappropriate way. Uh, in politics, there's all kinds of debate on whether or not a politician ought to use that position as a way in which to benefit their business because of the knowledge they have or the ability they have to make certain policy that might give them advantage. So there's certainly ways in which we can use these advantages unethically. Um, power. If I use my position as a minister, as a way to manipulate you or make you feel like you're not worth it or to give me something that you wouldn't normally do, I'm using that position in a way that is not appropriate. We know that God gives authority to those by, you know, Scripture speaks about that. So I don't think it's always wrong to take advantage of those things, but I think it certainly can be. The contrast is that Jesus never did that. And that speaks to his nature. His nature is, humility is inherent to who Jesus is. Um, not only was Christ's humility enough for him to deny the advantages uh, that being equal with God might offer, to do so would have gone against his divine nature. Uh, one commentator put it this way. Because of his divine nature, Christ did not consider equality with God something to be of which he should take advantage. His equality with God led him to view his status not as a matter of privilege, but as a matter of unselfish giving. This is the character of the biblical God and was the character of Christ Jesus as well. So while Christ being equal with God gave him the opportunity for all sorts of advantages, the thing he saw it as was a position of service. The meager circumstances of Christ's birth were just the beginning of how his divine nature would be displayed through humility. Not only did he give up his position of, of great standing to enter into this world, um, we know he did much more than that. Paul expands on this in verses 7 and 8. 
Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' humility led him to submit to death. Throughout his time on earth, Jesus' humility and his divine nature were on display. As Paul writes, he often served those around him, And despite the truth that he was divine and equal to God the Father, he denied the lofty position that that status afforded him and took on the role of a servant. Jesus even said in reference of of himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hold on a second, I'm getting dry. Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a man. Christ emptied himself by leaving his lofty status as equal with God and coming to earth. But he stooped even lower when his human condition and his obedience led him to the cross. If we continued on with the verse of Hark the Herald Angel Sings, we would come to this phrase. And I'm going to start with mild he lay. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. This is the story of the gospel. Christ's humble submission to death on the cross not only embodies his divine nature and his humility, it offers a chance of redemption for all mankind. The tradition of Christmas is often centered around the miraculous and joyous birth of Christ. And rightly so. But that birth ultimately doesn't matter to you and I without Jesus' death. I think it's easy to be tempted to just focus on the sweetness of this picture of, of Christ, the idyllic baby, laying in a peaceful circumstance, those well-behaved animals, maybe a light snow falling. Does it even snow in the Middle East? I don't. Um, yeah, and, and get drawn into this fantasy of, of what, because there is that declaration of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And I don't know what that looked like. We know Jesus was miraculous, so maybe that's exactly what it looked like. I I think it's probably fair to assume maybe he got hungry and cried a bit, and maybe those animals were a little unruly because there was somebody in their house that wasn't supposed to be there. I don't know. But even more than that, if we're tempted to focus on that and forget about what happens later, we're missing the point. Paul doesn't... uh, as the carol, and, and sorry, I got a little lost here. But if we focus too much on this idea, this fantasy of, 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 of Jesus as a baby, and maybe it's the truth, but if we focus only on that, what good does that really do us? And that's a mistake that I think the world around us has made and maybe led us to the point that we're in now. I, I don't know. Um, we, we, I referenced... Um, the Charlie Brown Christmas, and we watched it a few weeks ago, um, and I had found it on DVD. So we watched it on DVD, and there was a, there were special features, and it talked about the making of this Christmas special, and it's a story that is pretty wild. I'm not going to tell the whole thing, but um, basically, uh, somebody sold this idea to the Coca-Cola company um, somewhere in the summer, and they went to 
uh, Schultz, the creator of, of Peanuts, and said, all right, we've got to make this Christmas special. They want to draft next week. And they talked about how preposterous this was, that how Christmas specials were typically an 18-month process. And so they went through this whole thing. Um, there was a lot of different things. Um, the inclusion of Linus's speech and the quoting of Scripture was, was wondered about whether that was appropriate, although not in the way you might assume. Uh, it was questioned as whether or not it was appropriate to have the Word of God be part of a cartoon. Um, not that it would be pushed back against, which I found a little bit interesting. But ultimately, they get done with this. They give it to Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola says, well, thanks, you guys tried. Uh, we'll show it, and we'll do something else next year. They didn't figure it was going to, they thought it was a flop. Turned out to be the most popular Christmas special, the most popular thing on television that day. And uh, at the point of this making, it had been shown every year for 60-some years. Um, it's just interesting the way in which God works and, and whatever. But the one thing that that special does not do is talk about Jesus' death. And I love it. I love the truth of it. But the truth is it comes short in telling the story of Jesus. Um, I don't know if, uh, if Paul is, is talking this directly, and I don't think that the, maybe the hymn is, but um, one of the things that we know is that not only, because of, not only because of Christ's death do we see this redemption, but also because of the resurrection. And because of that, we no longer have to face spiritual death. We have hope that we will join him in the presence of the Father for all eternity. While we celebrate the birth of Jesus and his significance for mankind, we must remember that significance is directly tied also to his death and resurrection. I think Paul is at least indirectly referring to Christ's resurrection in verses 9 through 11. He's certainly speaking to the direct results of that resurrection. And so as we finish this text, uh, beginning in verse 9, it says, Therefore, as a result of the way in which Christ laid aside his rights, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the third thing that Paul teaches us about Christ's nature and his humility is that Jesus' humility will ultimately lead to his glorification. I think the word that he used in this translation was, is exaltation, is uplifting. As a result of Christ's willingness to be humbled and submit to the service of mankind, including death, Paul writes that God has exalted him. We know because God has revealed to us through his scripture the results of Christ's humble beginning on earth and the life that he lived. We know that God has not only raised him from a physical death, but that he has given a position, him a position of authority over all creation. I wonder if the angels ref, referenced in the carol had some idea of this when they sang glory to the newborn king. I wonder if that phrase holds some implication to Christ's eternal reign. I don't know. I think we can certainly see that significance now. Um, we know from Paul's words here that God exalted Jesus in two ways. The first is that God gave Jesus the name above every name. One commentator pointed out that Paul is not specific as to what that name actually is. His emphasis is on the status of the name, that it is above all others. I think sometimes we make the mistake of, of becoming fixated on specific words. Um, I, I know that there are many that, that get caught up in this idea of what is that name 
that is specific to every name. One person speculated that it's not a name at all. It's the title Lord. What we know from this is that the significance is that it is over every other name. And as a result of that, God also gave Jesus a position of authority over all creation. Paul seems to refer to Isaiah 45, verses 23 and 24 here. There's certainly a bit of a quote. And it says this, Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, In the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. There is an implication here that the equality with God that Jesus always possessed would be acknowledged by all creation. Remember, as we talked about Christ setting aside this position of advantage, it did not mean that he was no longer equal with God. He was always equal with God. But the humility that was inherent in his nature made it so that he didn't take advantage of that equality. So as a result, the Father is now acknowledging and affirming that equality. And he's putting Christ in a position where all creation will come to acknowledge it as well. Not only will angels declare glory to the newborn king, but all creation will confess that Christ is Lord. That humility of Christ led him to submit to death. And as a result, he will be glorified. And he has been glorified to some extent, but we have not seen the fullness of that yet. And we started today with a simple phrase from a beloved carol that said, Mild he lays his glory by. And we've come to this point where Paul has declared that because Christ denied the advantages of his divinity and submitted to death on a cross, all will come to acknowledge him as Lord over creation. So what ought we do with this insight as we celebrate Christmas this year? In the verses surrounding the text that we did today, Paul challenges the Philippians to adopt an attitude of humility like that of Christ. See, I only took it a little bit out of context. I got to it. But that's, that is Paul's purpose in writing this here. And that's a tall order, I know. And honestly, one I don't think we can probably fully meet. But the truth is that Paul's expectation of, of believers, in verse 5, he says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to the, write our text, which describes the humility that Christ had. And then later in verse 12, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we become more aware of the way in which Christ's humble nature embodies who he is, we're called to adopt that attitude. So how specifically this season... Can we honor that humility in our Christmas celebrations? Um, I think there's several things that are traditional that maybe can already do that. The giving of gifts is one that comes to mind. It's fairly obvious, this idea that, you know, we give each other things um, to honor Christ because of, of his generosity, because of his humility. And I think that can, that can certainly do that. But I think there is an attitude that goes along with that in order for that to be, the, be true. If I'm giving you something so that you'll sell me, oh, thanks, and I feel good about it and I'm acknowledged, or if I'm giving it that in the hopes that you'll give me something back, I'm not sure that's exactly what we're talking about here. So when we're talking about giving, we're talking about this selfless idea of putting others above ourselves. That's what Christ's humility is. Uh, many find extra opportunities to serve others this time of year. Um, there's, you know, the stereotype of going and volunteering in a soup kitchen. 
Um, there's all sorts of ways in which we can find extra opportunities to do that. My question is, why just this time of year? What is, what is there that makes service this time of year more significant than any other time of year? I mean, I, I'm not saying doing something extra as a way to honor the season is wrong. But I do think that if that's the only time that we're thinking about that, we're missing out on who Jesus really is. There are so many things this time of year that can be a distraction. We can get swept up in all kinds of things. And some of those things are good in and of themselves. But if they distract us from who Jesus is and who he calls us to be as his followers, we're missing out. Ultimately, as we celebrate Christmas, we ought to join with the angels in declaring glory to the king. We humble ourselves and we allow Christ to be the Lord of our lives. That's the true meaning of Christmas, to, to steal Linus's line. It's not just that Jesus came. It's not even just that he died and rose again. It's that he embodied a humility that we are now called to emulate. So I, I hope as, as we celebrate Christmas this year, uh, we can let that humility kind of permeate our celebrations, that we can do what Scrooge promised to do, I don't know if he was able to do it, and keep the spirit of Christmas all the year, that we can embody this humility, that we can seek to have this attitude that was embodied by Christ in all that we do. I know that's a big challenge, and I know that... that uh, we need God to help us do it. But that, I think that's what's laid out here in Philippians. So, um, Let's pray. Father, um, again, I thank you for uh, being my supply in these circumstances. Um, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you uh, for his humility that led him to submit to coming as a man, to living a life of service, and ultimately submitting to, to death on a cross. We thank you for your power to resurrect him and to give us hope that we can join him in that. Lord, I just pray that as we celebrate this season, uh, that we would do so in a way that embodies that humility that your son embodied. I pray that it would inspire us to do so in all that we do, even once this season has passed. Most of all, I give you thanks for the way in which you've provided us through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.